Okay. This evening, I'm going to be speaking to you with the help of the Lord about creation versus evolution. Now, uh, perhaps the uh, clearest thing, oh, thank you. Perhaps the um, <clears throat> clearest thing in Genesis 1 is the affirmation creation. We find the key refrain that runs through this passage of Scripture, God saw that it was good. Six times after day 1, verse 4, day 3, verse 10 and 12, day 4, verse 18, day 5, verse 21, and day 6, verse 25, and a second time after the creation of humanity, with the addition of very in verse 31. Clearly, one of the uh, main themes of Genesis 1 is the creation. And yet, it seems like one of the most difficult things to affirm is creation that it is good. Why do I say that? Not because of natural disasters like hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, which can be so devastating, no, it seems hard to affirm the goodness of creation when you take a close look at the normal workings of nature. When you take a look at the <clears throat> a close look at the creation, what do you actually see? So much that is either ambiguous and not obviously good or that seems less than good, even harsh, cruel, or indifferent. <clears throat> Perhaps you may take a walk sometime through a park. It'll be lovely, but if you stop and look more carefully at what's going on, you'll notice there's a world at war. Everything seems to be eating everything else. Everything is consuming life to stay alive. The grass is just trying to be green, but it's constantly being eaten by bugs or cattle, and the bugs are trying to do their thing, but they're constantly being eaten by the bigger bugs and the bigger bugs by the birds, and the birds by all the cats in the neighborhood, and so it goes. The poet Alfred Lord Tennyson reflected on this reality about in nature in a famous poem, poem in which he confessed, nature is red in tooth and claw. Yep. I remember leaving early one morning, a few months ago, and I saw a cat outside, and its nightly exploit had delivered a mouse. But it didn't have the mouse in its mouth. It was playing with the mouse, rather toying with it. Cats seem to do that to mice, and it seems likely they always have. What is a cat but an animal with claws and teeth, seemingly designed to hunt for prey? The question for those of us living in the 21st century is not how we explain the presence of evil in the world, but where do we find any goodness in the world? What does it mean to say creation is good? Now, I recognize that not every Christian struggles with this issue or even has this problem. Some Christians ascribe all of the cruelty of nature, both human and animal death, all biological suffering and death, to the fall described in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, which if you turn with me now, you'll see that it says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, 
and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. That has been the classic approach to this question, going all the way back to Augustine, and it may be well, and it may well be the right approach. It certainly solves this particular problem. If you're a confident young earth creationist, then I recognize this isn't a huge dilemma for you. This isn't your issue. But there are many who aren't young earth Christianists, even with our body, <clears throat> even within our body. And yet we need to make sense of the Bible's teaching about creation. There are three types of folks primarily in mind in this message. The confused biology student, the conflicted nature lover, and the convinced evolutionist. First, we start with the confused biological student, biology student, excuse me. You've learned about the mechanisms that almost all scientists think drive forward biological diversity on the planet Earth, natural selection, and it may strike you as feasible. The concerned nature lover, you love nature, its beauty, its elegance, its grandeur. You see it reflecting the glory of God, and it's easy for you to find your spirits lifted when you're taking a walk in the park or going for a hike or sitting by a lake or admiring a sunset. And yet it bothers you that cats chase mice or lions eat gazelles or that parasites have no other purpose but to be parasitic and feed off of other things. You love nature, but you recognize there is an astonishing amount of bloodshed in the natural world, in God's creation. I also have in mind, thirdly, the convinced evolutionist. You may be a Christian and you're trying to figure out how the science might reconcile with your faith in Jesus, or you may not be a Christian, and evolution is one of the things that keeps you from taking Christianity seriously. Either way, you may struggle with how the teaching of the Bible could be true if an evolutionary account of the world is true, not least because the Bible seems to say that there is creation and it is good. This was Darwin's struggle, as you may know. He struggled with pure, cruel nature. In fact, his deep reflections on the nature of nature ended up eroding his confidence in the goodness of God and the goodness of creation. He famously said to a friend once, what a book a devil's chaplain might write on the clumsy, wasteful, blundering, low, and horribly cruel works of nature. He was particularly bothered by a kind of parasitic wasp that lays its eggs not on a tree or in a little hole in the ground, but inside a caterpillar. And when the eggs hatch, little larvae end up consuming the caterpillar from the inside out. One has life by consuming the life of another. Nature read in tooth and claw. Before I continue the conversation about creation, let's delve into the different types of animals in the world. They are as follows, mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, invertebrates, that is creatures without a backbone, and fish. Let's start with the amphibians. They are vertebrates, meaning they have a backbone. They take in water and air through their skin, and they have a life cycle which goes from egg to larva to an adult. Examples of amphibians are frogs, newts, toads, and salamanders. They are also cold-blooded, meaning their surroundings determine their body temperature. They need water or a moist environment to survive. The next is birds. 
Birds are warm-blooded vertebrates that all have wings, but not all can fly. In order to reproduce, birds lay eggs. They maintain their own body temperature and all only have two legs. Types of birds include the ostrich, chicken, eagle, flamingo, parrots, and penguins. You may wonder why I'm going over all of this, but in order to discuss creation over evolution, I must have <clears throat> first some knowledge of both. The next is fish. They have backbones and their surroundings dictate their body temp. Uh, fish have fins, live underwater. Not all fish have bodies covered with scales and breathe through gills. There are more than 30,000 species of fish. They lay eggs to reproduce. Some examples of fish are eels, seahorses, manta rays, sharks, tuna, and salmon. Mammals are next, and as we know, humans are mammals. They have backbones, and most of them have hair. Except for me, of course. Uh, when they are young, they nurse in order to get nourishment. They are warm-blooded, and almost all are born alive. Some types of mammals are bats, elephants, whales, rodents, and rhinoceroses. The last type is reptiles. They are cold-blooded, they lay eggs and use lungs to breathe, and they are covered with scales. They include the crocodile, sea turtles, lizards, geckos, and snakes. Now, I have seen hundreds of documentaries about animals. Every creature, by the way, did you ever notice that the word create is in the word creature? Most of us know that DNA and genes determine how all animals will look when they are born. Some genes are known as recessive genes. One example of this gene is the gene that produces albinos. These are animals that are born with white or yellow fur or scales or skin. Genes also determine the color of hair, eyes, and skin. I have seen lions, snakes that have been born albino. I have also seen people and animals both that have had eyes that are a different color. I have heard of black people giving birth to a Caucasian child, but I have never, let me repeat that, never seen or heard of a fish that has given birth to a reptile or a mammal or a bird. Also, if humans did evolve from an ape, wouldn't it stand to reason that a human at some point would have given birth to an ape due to recessive genes? I really don't think that that is possible for one type of an animal to give birth to an entirely different type of animal. Not to mention, if such a thing had ever occurred, I would think it would be the biggest news story ever, especially since scientists are always trying to prove that there is no God. So what sense does it make then to talk about the goodness of creation with all the problems in the world? Let me offer five brief affirmations or ways of thinking about the goodness of creation. What does it mean when it says, and God saw that it was good? When we say creation is good, we mean it is either, we mean it is reflective of God, conductive to life, suffused with purpose, enriched by beauty, and clarified in Christ. First, we have reflective of God. First, creation is good in that creation is reflective of God. 
That is, creation reflects or reveals God, his nature and his character, his goodness. Let's turn to the book of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And we all know that the Word is meaning Jesus, that's why it's capitalized. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. We need to remember everything that happens in Genesis 1, 2, and following the creation of the world depends upon the God who creates in verse 1. We focused on the days, but the focus is on the God who speaks, who reveals, who creates. Creation ultimately reveals God. We want to say that creation is good because God is good. Even though creation isn't God, it is still good, just like God is good, because God in his goodness made this creation. God has also gifted creation that reflects not only God's nature, but also God's character. Creation reveals the nature of God in his power, his wisdom, his intelligence. This is Paul's point in the book of Romans, verse 1, or excuse me, chapter 1, verse 20, which says, For the visible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. About creation telling us about God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature. But creation also, even, <clears throat> excuse me, most more importantly, reflects the goodness of God, his kindness, his generosity, his graciousness, and his love. Creation is a gift, not a given. We see God's power and genius as the architect and maker of creation. We also see God's care and goodness for creation. As Jesus says, he dresses the lilies of the field, he feeds the birds of the air, and he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. The, all the interconnected operations of this world around us speak to the power of God. Yes, but they also speak to the goodness of God. We see his wisdom, yes, but we also see his kindness and his goodness. Creation is good because it reflects and reveals this goodness of God. Next, we have conductive to life. The second affirmation is this, creation is good in that creation is conductive to life. Perhaps the most obvious thing about the opening chapter of Genesis is its structure in terms of six days. But if you look closely, you notice the days aren't just in some linear sequence, day one, day two, day three, as though that were the only point. No, they're carefully arranged into groups, days one through three and days four through six. On the first three days of creation, God creates habitats or environments. Then on the next three days of creation, he fills these habitats or environments. Day one, day and night, he fills with heavenly lights on day four. Day two, he creates sky. Then on day five, he fills it with birds. 
And last but not least, on day three, he creates the land and the sea with vegetation. And then naturally, on day six, he fills the land and sea with land creatures, including human beings, who live on that land and feed on that vegetation. It's habitations, days one, two, three, and then inhabitants, days four through six. This is summarized in Genesis 2, <clears throat> verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, i.e. the habitations of day 1 through 3, in all their vast array, i.e. the habitants of days 4 to 6, we could also think of this in terms of forming days 1 through 3, and then filling days 4 to 6. Now in uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 3, we read, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. So we see the forming is good, the filling is good, and the whole thing with man included is very good. Now the point of all of this <clears throat> is that this good creation God has made is conductive to life, all biological life, plants, fish, birds, and animals, and especially human life. Or to put it this way, this creation we find ourselves in on isn't Mars or Mercury or Venus or Pluto. It's not as hot as Mercury, where there's also, by the way, no oxygen, no water, no air. But it's not like Mars, where the temperature and atmosphere don't work for life. And we're not like Pluto, which is apparently very cold, dark, and lonely. Scientists sometimes refer to this as anthropic principle. The idea that our planet, indeed, our solar system, our galaxy, is uniquely conductive to life. That's one of the main things that we can say in the light of Genesis 1. Creation is good in that creation is conductive to life. Next, <clears throat> it's suffused with purpose. Third, creation is good in that creation is suffused with purpose. Everything in creation ori is oriented around a purpose, even if it's not always obvious to us or useful or beneficial. There is a functional integrity to creation. Things, generally speaking, work well and are well-ordered. Or, to put it this way, there's not much pointless stuff or wasted time in creation. Everything is working toward a goal, an end, or purpose. You don't find a pack of wolves loitering around in a parking lot somewhere. They're busy. You don't have to run across a flock of geese that have nothing to do. Or, excuse me, you haven't run across a flock of geese that have nothing to do. You never see an army of ants not hard at work. The only exception to this may be the cat. I recognize that cats seem to always be on vacation and enjoying a nap in the sun, but this is probably because they sleep during the day and they start their work when they go, when we go to sleep. Now in Revelation 4, uh, verse 11, we read these words. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. 
Now, the word tov in Hebrew, which we translate good in Genesis 1, has a wide range of meanings, but it basically refers to being fit for a purpose. Something is good for some purpose. That is what Genesis 1 is primarily about. God ordering the world and forming it for a purpose, for life, for humanity. You will notice the theme of separation in this chapter. The verb appears five times in Genesis 1. It's not about pulling things apart, but rather putting things in their proper place so that they are well ordered. It's like the old adage, everything has a place and everything in its place. This is the idea when God sees that his creation is highly ordered for the purpose he intends. He can say that it is good. Perhaps the best way to get at the meaning of the word good in Genesis 1 is to look at something that it is that is described as not good. And we have one very good example. In Genesis 2, verse 18, the Bible says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help me for him. What does this mean? That there was something imperfect about Adam existing without Eve? Or that there was something immoral? No. Rather, that what is being communicated is that there was something lacking or something not rightly ordered, something not put together the way that it should be. This is why the opening chapter of Genesis reaches the high point it does in verse 31. God saw all that he had made, everything had a place, everything was rightly ordered, everything had a function, and was very good. Creation is good because creation is suffused with a purpose. Now also, <clears throat> it is enriched by beauty. Fourth, creation is good because creation is enriched by beauty. You realize the world didn't need to be as beautiful as it is. There is a surplus of beauty in the world around us. The heavens are indeed telling of the glory of God. In Psalm, the, or the book of Psalms, 118, verse 23, this is the Lord's doing. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Some older visions of God coming out of the scientific revolution and the influence of Isaac Newton especially see God as a very sophisticated engineer, as a very skilled watchmaker. These views of God rightly emphasize God as a God of order and structure and laws. But while this world certainly is ordered, it is also enriched by beauty. God is not just left-brained like an engineer or mathematician. God is also right-brained like an artist or poet or musician. We see this in the text of Genesis. Notice how after God creates, he takes a look at what he has created and he is delighted with it. And God saw that it was good. God at heart is an artist who simply enjoys making stuff. He loves materiality. He loves creation. Think about it. He created whole galaxies, billions of stars that no one will ever see. But not only that, he also created creatures that no one will likely ever see. What am I saying? That there is a kind of artistic wastefulness to creation, like the artist who just creates paintings or drawings because he loves to create and see 
and enjoy beauty. Even if the paintings are never seen or sold, they delight the artist, so too with God. Creation is good in that creation is enriched with beauty to be seen and enjoyed by creatures like you and me. And finally, it is clarified in Christ. Fifth and finally, creation is good in that creation is clarified in Christ Jesus. Christ is one <clears throat> Christ is the one who makes sense of creation. Why say that? Because, as the Bible says, Jesus Christ is the one in whom, through whom, and for whom all things exist. We see this in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, as I read before, and I will read it again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. <clears throat> the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now, what does this mean? We cannot, that we cannot rightly understand creation apart from Christ. He is the key to understanding the world rightly. His life, death, and resurrection make sense of the creation, not least the goodness, goodness of creation. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, for him, but, or for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. In his incarnation, the Son embraces and endorses the fundamental goodness of creation. We cannot believe in the incarnation that God became a man and say that creation is anything less than good. In his death, he reminds us there is something deeply broken with creation. The cross of Christ and the death of God incarnate remind us that creation is fundamentally good, but it's also deeply broken because it is damaged by sin. As Paul says, the creation has itself subject to, has been, subject to futility, and that it now groans in eager expectation for the revealing of the sons of God. Yet, in Christ's resurrection, he reminds us there is a goodness to creation we have not yet experienced. To say we believe in the goodness of creation is to affirm what we see with our eyes, its purpose and order and beauty. But it is also to speak with the voice of faith, to express hope in what we cannot see with our eyes, but what we can only embrace with our faith. As scripture says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. One of the things hoped for and one of the things not seen is what the Bible calls the new creation a second creation that will be a lot like this creation, only entirely renewed and perfected, where <clears throat> there will be no more sickness or dying or death, where the lion will lie down with the lamb. And finally, in conclusion, <clears throat> many of you re will remember the deadly tsunami of 2004 that erupted in the Indian Ocean. When they say... They say it released, in terms of energy and power, something to the effect of 23 Hiroshima bombs, <clears throat> or Hiroshima-type atomic bombs. 
At the end of the day, more than 150,000 people were either killed or went missing. It was massive devastation that left the world reeling, and it left many of us asking serious questions about God and, yes, the goodness of creation. Turn with me to Psalm 46, verses 1 through 7, if you will. God is our refuge in strength, a very pleasant help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Through the earth, or though the earth be moved, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, Selah. There is a river, the streams whereof <clears throat> shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early. The heaven, the heathen raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, Selah. God created the heavens and the earth for us. The world is not a part of something, co of some cosmic accident or a Big Bang theory. The Big Bang is a theory not a fact. Animals cannot evolve from fish to reptile or mammal or even bird. Animals cannot change their DNA from warm-blooded to cold-blooded or even vice versa. God created the earth and heaven and man and animals. These things are not some kind of by chance incident. These are the things of a great and glorious God. <clears throat> Now, I know a lot of us have been taught in school about the theory of evolution and how things came crawling out of the primordial ooze, if you will. But <clears throat> when you think about it, and anybody who's also been taught about DNA, your DNA determines what you're going to be. Your DNA cannot be morphed into from a reptile into a mammal or any other variations of the species that you're born into. It, it just isn't feasible. It would be feasible with God because God can do anything as we all know. His power is limitless. But uh, just like Danny said one, uh, one Sunday morning, man uh, evolving from apes is no more... Um, a reality than this phone being able to evolve into a car. It just doesn't happen. Um, your DNA and your genes determine what you're going to be. God knows what you're going to be, and he knows what everything is going to be, because after all, he made everything. Um, thinking about this and re going through uh, these things that I studied upon, uh, reminds me of um, growing up in Massachusetts, uh, the pilgrims are a big thing because of Plymouth Rock. They supposedly landed on Plymouth Rock. Well, um, through, uh, throughout the time of uh, being a child in school, in grade school, um, they had pictures of a pilgrim was a man with a hat that had a belt and a big buckle on it. Uh, he also had pants with a big buckle on them, um, and his shoes had buckles. Well, back in those days, they didn't have buckles. Uh, smiths weren't able to create something as intricate as a buckle. 
They just had um, pants that were made out of either wool or some type of material like that. Um, I'm not sure if they even had an elastic seam. So I found out once uh, watching something on Discovery about the pilgrims coming to America <clears throat> that they did not dress like this. Their hats had no buckles, their belts had no buckles, and they, um, their shoes did not have buckles. What I'm getting at is also they said that uh, Plymouth Rock, they said, here it is, this is Plymouth Rock. And then later on they said, oh, well, wait a minute, uh, maybe that isn't Plymouth Rock. And then, for some strange reason, they decided to move the rock. And they're all confused. They haven't got a clue. <clears throat> Just like they haven't got any clue as to the workings of God. They can't, for some reason, man has to always, he can't get his head around the way that God is. That God is everywhere. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. And he's, what's the other one? Omnipresent. Meaning he is in the beginning, he's in the end, he's everywhere in time. So they can't get their heads around that. So I think men is, this is why men devise their own devices, if you will, or their own Bibles. The Mormons have their own Bible that they hold over the Holy Bible. and feel sorry for those people when they get to heaven. It, well, I don't know if they'll get there. <clears throat> they'll get to the judgment throne of Christ, though. Um, and... Also, uh, there's Hinduism, there's, there's so many different religions, and then there's different versions of this Bible, which, as I told you once before, uh, about God's truth, God cannot lie. That's why they say God's word, this is his word, he spoke it into existence, just like he did with the earth and all the universes and the galaxies and everything that we have around us, he spoke it into existence and he cannot lie, therefore, it's God's truth. Um, I don't know why, like I said, people have to invent these things. Maybe it's because they don't know and they want to appear smart to everybody else. Oh, look, I have a PhD. And to me, that stands for post hole digger. Um, but anyway, um, and sometimes people, it seems the smarter that they get, the dumber they get. My uh, mother was a... Um, accountant at a municipal hospital and this one woman had just gotten a degree and she got her check and she took and she threw away the check and she went and tried to cash the stub and then she was mad because they wouldn't let her cash the stub well if they let everybody cash the stub and their check everything would go bankrupt but anyway really smart huh can tell a check from the stub okay where's your degree anyway um, I don't know why people try and invent these things. And maybe it's like I said, they try and make themselves seem smart or what have you. And why they can't just admit that there, there is a God. Jesus lived on this earth. People witnessed Jesus. They witnessed his miracles. Why anybody can't just succumb to these facts. It, it kind of boggles my mind. But that's just the way that we are. I was stupid like that when I was being grown up, but I was being taught these things, and I was having faith in my teachers that they were telling me the truth. Well, a lot of things I found out uh, that happened in history didn't really happen. Things that I was taught were completely wrong. Uh, but that's the way it is. You learn through your experiences, and um, God 
sends, brings experiences to our lives, uh, just like the many things that have happened to me. And like Danny says, these experiences help us help others when they come to these same experiences that we've had so we can help them out. So anyway, that's all I have for you for this evening. Um, I hope you enjoyed uh, what I had to talk about. I hope it gives you something to think about. Some of you may not even have to think about it. Um, you already know that there is a God. And um, I also makes me think back to that bumper sticker that I saw, or it was, it was writing somewhere, and it said, I would rather believe in God to find out that he is not than not to believe in God and then find out that he is. Anyway, um, Brother Wade, if you would close us in a word of prayer, please. Dear Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. By him, all things were created, and through him and for him. Heavenly Father, thank you that we have your account of how you created all things. Amen. And they continue until today. And they will continue until you are done with them. Heavenly Father, thank you that you gave us life. And thank you that you gave us a new life in Jesus Christ. Amen. All these things we have because of your goodness. Thank you for this marvelous beautiful world that we live in. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the truth of your word, and thank you that you made us part of your forever family. Help us to help others to appreciate and thank you for all that you have given to us, including eternal life through Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, be with us as we go from here and bring us back next appointed time. And I pray that all that we say and do will bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Amen.